0: Here's my question to get us going today. Have you ever been around laws, rules? Have you ever been around commandments that take place or push aside or set aside compassion? Have you ever been a part of that? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been guilty of that? Usually this happens When sacred men, people with holy titles kind of like mine, that are in sacred places and have special authority, take sacred texts and they interpret them to benefit themselves as as opposed to the people that they were meant to help. Now, we've all experienced this, and maybe we've been guilty of this. I know, especially when I was a younger pastor, I was guilty of this because, you know, as a younger pastor, you know, 25, 26 years old, and I'm passionate and I'm fervent to get it all right and uphold these standards and the word of God and the church as perfect as we can. And I know as a young man, it was easy for me to lose sight of who we are trying to serve and who God loves as opposed to having the perfect everything going on. And that just simply sets us up so well for where we're going as we follow Jesus today. Because we're in a series called Bystander, and the idea is John and the rabbi from Nazareth. We're following Jesus through his life, through the eyes of John, who was his closest follower. And John documented Jesus' life and what he did and what he said. But this is so important, that John did not follow Jesus because of faith. You see, John didn't have any faith at all in Jesus when Jesus called him to follow him. See, John was just a simple fisherman with his family and his papa, and Jesus said, follow me. And so John followed Jesus, but not because he had faith. He just was interested. But along the way, he had faith because of what he saw and what he heard. That John saw so many amazing things and heard so many th- amazing things from Jesus. It grew faith, and then he would kind of lose faith, and then his faith would grow and lose faith until after the resurrection. He was so convinced of who Jesus was because of the evidence of Jesus. Now John writes this in his epistle. He says that which was from the beginning, and that means when Jesus showed up with us and started hanging with us, which we have heard with our own ears and which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. John alludes to the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead, they actually put their fingers and hands in the nail holes in his hands. And so we touched him, we believe with all of our heart. And John had this big, audacious goal to pass on not just what he knew and what he had learned, he wanted to pass on his belief and trust. To you and to me, 2,000 years later, and all the people along the way. John goes on to say, he says, the life. now this is so fascinating. I feel like John's saying, I don't even know what to call Jesus. I don't even know how to describe Jesus. So I'm just going to go with life. Because when we were around him, it was like we were around life itself. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you what we have seen and we have heard. I have an agenda. I want you to see as I see and hear as I hear. And at the end of John's gospel, his document of Jesus, his life, he decides to give us this mission statement of why he is doing all these things and writing all these things down as an old man who probably has bad eyesight, has to dictate this letter to someone else. He says, here's my purpose statement for this whole work I've put together about Jesus and what I knew about him. He says, but these things, are written that you may believe that's what Jesus wants for you. And let's just be honest. Is there a better time than right now to consider belief and trust in the Savior of the world? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, believing you may have life in his name so John sets out to convince us of these things to pass these things along as accurately as possible because John did not want you to believe and Jesus did not want you to believe for his sake you know just believe to believe just have faith brother just have faith sister John wanted you to have evidence the evidence that he saw that's why he documented all this stuff and so in John's gospel As in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he orientates his entire writing around seven signs that Jesus did. Now, these things we've started to talk about, these aren't just seven miracles. They're seven signs that point to who Jesus is and who he was and what he came to do. And today, I want to talk to you about the third sign that Jesus performed. Now, if you have an English Bible, there might be a heading in it, and the heading might say the healing of the, on the Sabbath, which is just like big stuff back in Jesus' day. Last week, we talked about this noble man that came to Jesus whose son was dying, and this man just had heard about Jesus. He heard stories about the miracles and signs that he'd already done, and so in faith, he believed before Jesus ever did anything. He believed, which is a little bit how our faith works, isn't it? that we believe based on what people have told us and what we've experienced along the way. Before that, the first miracle was this whole idea of turning water into wine, and you've you've missed either of those messages. I'd encourage you to go back and watch. But now, Jesus, after he heals a nobleman's son, they're way north of Jerusalem. And they make their way down to Jerusalem. And this is what John says in his little documentation of Jesus' life. He says, Sometime later, like five or six days later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, this is so fascinating, and you've got to catch the detail of this. It says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, although they were going south. And that is because they traveled south, but when you got to Jerusalem, it's on this large hill, small mountain. And to get up to it, you had to climb up the hill. And John goes, Yep. We climbed up the hill because that's what we did. And then he gives us so much wonderful detail. He says, now there is in Jerusalem. And I did a pause there just for a minute, because he's talking about the present tense. Yeah, there is right now in Jerusalem, like if you go to Jerusalem in this moment, there's this thing we're about to read about. And this is significant because one of the great arguments about the validity of the gospels is that they're written so long after Jesus was on the earth that they lost, you know, credibility. But when we read this, we realize the window of time is short enough that Jerusalem hasn't changed much. John's writing this as an old man, but things are still exactly the way they were when he experienced them with Jesus. So look at this. Now there is, like right now in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool in which Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Just lots of detail because it's what happened in the moment. John tells us that here... A great number, tons of people, hundreds, maybe over a thousand of disabled people used to lie, the blind, and this is detail, the lame, the paralyzed. Now you have to get a picture of what this looked like, and I think John's trying to help us that this was a desperate place and this was desperate people. Needing desperate help. Because in this day, doctors were scarce and doctors were scary. Doctors were scarce because only rich people could afford doctors. And they were scary because there was a Roman law that said you could not do an autopsy on a dead body. It's a very strange law. And so what doctors would do to try and understand the human body 2,000 years ago, they would watch for people that were about to die, and then they would approach them, and as they're kind of fading away, hopefully not realizing what's going on, they would perform a type of autopsy to check their internal organs. It was a terrible, terrible way to learn medicine, painful, awful. You could say it was torturous. And Doctors were scary, and, and the fact that you couldn't have a doctor because if you didn't have money and met people would do one of two things. When they were lame, they were blind, they were sick. They would go to the temple and hope for help, or they would follow superstitions. Now in this particular case, there's this pool in Jerusalem that would bubble up every once in a while. And legend had it that it was an angel that stirred it with his or her finger. And when the angel stirred it with his or her finger, the first person into the pool would be healed. It was a crazy legend, it was a crazy myth. They excavated that pool you know, years and years and years later and they found it was fed by a natural spring. And the natural spring would make it bubble up. And this is where this legend came from. But I'm telling you, this was a place of pain and agony. It smelled terrible. Hundreds of sick people just lying around, moaning in pain. The disease was so deep that officials would have to walk through every once in a while just to collect the dead bodies and get them out of there to try and contain all the sickness that was going on. And so Jesus wades into this mess because Jesus is not afraid of our messes in any way, shape, or form. John goes on and he says, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years can you imagine 38 years in that place with no help and no hope apparently jesus was looking because john says when when jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long long time jesus leans in i'm not sure if he squats down and i think he probably whispered this because he probably can't say this out loud to one person not all of them to one person which is a great question why he looks at him and says hey do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's a great question, right? And it seems like a little bit of a silly question, but isn't it true if we just pull out of this story for just a minute? It's kind of a question for all of us when it comes to our lives and our faith in Jesus, because we know this, sometimes it's easier to stay sick than get well. Sometimes it takes more effort to get well than just stay sick, at least in our minds. I mean, we think about our health and our lives. I mean, there's some opportunities to get healthy and whole in our lives, but it takes sacrifice and takes effort. You know, to get off some of the things I'm taking, you know, medicine-wise, i got to quit eating sugar, but I don't want to do that. That's a painful thing. For me to get up and take a walk around the block, that's just difficult, and I'd rather just do what I want to do as opposed to get well. Maybe you haven't gone to the doctor in years, and you're sick, and you just don't want to go. And Jesus asks a question that I think we should all ask. Do I really want to get well? And the fascinating thing about this is we live in a day and an age where we can actually get well much of the time. And maybe for you it's not a physical thing. Maybe it's an addiction thing. Like you've had your friends and you've had your family say, hey, you drink too much. And you know you drink too much, but you're not willing to cross that road or admit it or to get help. Maybe for you it's a private addiction that you're hiding from people. And you know you should get well, but it just takes way too much effort. And I just ask you the question I'm asking myself every day in my life. Hey, do you really want to get well? But to get well, sometimes you got to pay the price. But to honor God... To take care of yourself and to take care of those around you who love you. Maybe you should answer the question, yeah, I want to get well. So Jesus, back to the story. Jesus asks this young man, do you want to get well? And this man responds, sir. The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. I mean, the pool stirred yesterday. And this dude, because I can't get up, he stepped on my head and, you know, he knocked out one of my teeth. It's a madhouse when that water gets stirred. Everybody's trying to get into it. I have no one to help me. I'm all alone. I'm all by myself. And if you can just imagine what this would look like people that can't walk, people that can't use their arms, maybe blind people, they might roll into this pool and just sink right to the bottom and they think they're healed because they never see him again they think they walked off meanwhile they're at the bottom of this pool in a terrible terrible place i have no one to help me and i don't know if john is sitting in his living room or out under a tree writing this or dictating this as an old man but i bet i bet he smiled when he thought about this next part and this is the part that leans into the sign because jesus says hey man why don't you just get up to which the young man probably did not know what to say. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And this is the place where it starts to lean into a sign. When he says, pick up your mat and walk, he means, hey, wake up, rise up. It literally means come to life. It is time for you to stop living in this state and move into a better place in your life. And I don't know if the man felt something, if his legs came alive. I don't know how this happened. All we know through the eyes of John who was watching this, he writes down, At once, I saw it, guys, at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. I just paused for a minute. The fact he does this little act of being healed and then picks up his mat in this moment is where this turns into something really significant, and it's not just the fact that he could walk. It's the fact that Jesus was changing the dynamic of the whole world when it came to God because John says, and again, he had to smile because he knew the trouble Jesus was about to get into. He writes down, the day in which this took place was the Sabbath. Sabbath. Now, we don't understand the Sabbath the way these guys did. It was a really important day. And on this day, because of the Sabbath, there was probably religious leaders, Pharisees, walking around looking for people that were violating the Sabbath, the rules of the day off for the Jewish culture. Meanwhile, this young man, who, who was not really young, he's probably middle-aged, he can walk, and he's heading towards the temple. With his mat over his shoulder, and I'm not sure why he's going to the temple. Maybe to give thanks, maybe to have a sacrifice. Maybe he's going to borrow some money so he could give something back to God. He's excited and he is thankful. And he's heading towards the temple. But this is a big deal. Because we're told this, that the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed just a few minutes earlier, just a few hours earlier, his life has been changed. It's the Sabbath. The Lord forbids you to carry your mat. To which he had to say, what? Are you kidding me? Now, they said the Lord forbids you to carry your mat, or the law forbids you to carry your mat, which was not true. The actual law that was brought down from Mount Sinai, you may know them as the Ten Commandments, does not say this. But there's an interesting thing. There's this thing called the law of the elders, And the Jewish people believe that when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he also came down with an oral tradition or oral commandments from God. These things that only Moses knew. Now, this probably isn't true the way they thought it was true. And Moses passed it on to Joshua, and Joshua passed it on to the judges, and judges passed it on to these Pharisees. But this oral tradition was only kept by sacred men in holy places, and it was only verbal. They did not write it down. And what they began to do is keep adding and adding and adding to these rules that the people could not do and things they could not be a part of, especially on the Sabbath, and it became restrictive and it became a burden and it weighed people down. On the Sabbath day alone, there were 39 categories, not 39 rules, there was 39 categories of rules that you couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath. And one of them included you can't carry anything on the sabbath which is basically saturday in jewish culture and this religion and these laws i mean maybe you understand this because you were part of a church growing up where it was just like rule after rule after rule after rule right or you go to work with somebody and they're they're a christian but man they don't like talk about jesus and god's love and forgiveness for you they just want to throw more rules and rules and rules at you well that's exactly where this comes from these you know Religious leaders that just increase the rules over and over and over. The place that they got this from is actually a law, and it comes from the Ten Commandments. We're told this in Exodus. Moses passed this on when he said, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In other words, you need to take a day off of work for you. Take a day off of work, but don't take a day off of love. You need to take a day off from your occupation, but don't take a day off from compassion because you wouldn't want God to take a day off from love and compassion for you so don't you do it either the Sabbath's for you Jesus would tell us this later and here's the problem when it comes to our religion and our systems of religiosity we we forget sometimes that God gave us all that for us He did not create people to fulfill his laws. He gave us some laws and parameters because he loved us and he wanted to be safe and he wanted us to rest on the Sabbath, not make it a burden we could not carry. And we ignore what the thing was given to us in the first place for. Now the next thing I'm going to say might bother you. It might frustrate you. Depending on the religious system you grew up in, it might drive you a little crazy. And I hope it does. I hope it at least causes you to think. See, when we become too religious or over-religious and we forget about Jesus, we forget about people for theological systems. Like here's how our theology has to be. Here's how our belief system has to be. It has to be perfect. We can't mess it up. And we have to just adhere to everything. And if we do, God won't love us anymore. I mean, that could not be further from the truth. We forget people and how to love people for the sake of ideology. The perfect picture of how the church should work. And the picture perfect picture of how things should go. And if you've ever made this statement, man, if I ran this church, it'd be so perfect no one would want to show up at it. I'm gonna ask you a question. Is that really the kind of church that Jesus would have you run in light of how much people loved, or Jesus loved people that showed up around him, broken and messed up? Here's the part that might frustrate you. We forget about people in light of political agendas. Man, my party's so right and they're so wrong. My party's so right and they're so wrong. I don't care who you are. They're, you're just stupid because you don't believe what I believe. And you're not important because you don't believe what I believe. How about this one? Party loyalty. Above all means, you've got to be loyal to this, even if it kind of costs me what Jesus taught. Now, here, here is the challenge for me. I can go, yeah, I agree with that. But the problem with me is when I read this or wrote this out for the first time, I thought about the people that needed this, not myself. And maybe you did too. Here's how I can prove it's all of our problems. When I read through this, you thought of your mother-in-law. You thought of your father-in-law. You thought of your neighbor. Yeah, they really need to think about this. I'll bet you didn't think about you. You. And listen, the time we're in, especially right now for the next month or two months or three months or however long this season's last, we have to be diligent about remembering the people around us that need to be loved. And I think if you read, heard that and you went like, amen, I hope somebody's listening to this, I think Jesus might say, brother, sister, you got to look in the mirror and be real with yourself. And identify maybe you've forgotten what's most important as a follower of Jesus. And we say this all the time, that if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've ever been taught or heard or been hurt by us in this way, we're sorry and it's on us. It's not on you. Because this is what Jesus kind of taught. He taught that when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to you, you are at odds with God. God. When you don't want what's best with people, when you don't love people, you're at odds with God. You're in a place that you do not want to be. I mean, just think about John. He gave up his whole life to follow Jesus for this stuff. And he watched love in this way change the world. And it could change the world again. And listen, anything that would cause you to hurt someone, Jesus was without a sin. Anything you do that would keep people from engaging with God and define love in God, Jesus would say, that's the highest level of sin because I love people and you mess up my love. You and I got a problem. Now, I still love you, but you and I got a problem. And here's the dangerous thing with people like me. Listen, I know a little bit about Scripture. And if I want to take a stand on a particular thing, I can find a Scripture to back up my stand if I pull it out of context. That is why the context of interpreting the Scripture and doing church and loving people and being a Christian always has to flow through. God loves me and I'm loving you. And if anything else is the filter for that, we got to readjust our filter. Because as a preacher, I can tell you words to say to condemn people because I can pull them out of context and you probably can too. But we cannot go there. Back to our story, I know that was just a little convicting. Back to our story, the guy says, it, it, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, which it didn't. But he, the guy that was lame, replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. Now listen, he had to be frustrated. I don't care if you're mad at him, mad at me, or not. Here's what I know I'm walking here's what I know. I have found life. I have spent 38 years laying on my back in that cesspool of pain and smell and agony. And you never as a religious leader came and helped me. And this guy came and he healed me. And I'm going to follow him no matter how frustrated you are. And and we know this because these religious leaders had put these crazy ideas in people's heads. Like, for instance, in the day of the Jewish people, when Jesus was around, Jewish people believed this. If you were a pregnant woman and you went into a pagan temple, they believed that your baby that was in your womb would pay the price for you attending a pagan religious system. Can you imagine that? They believed that when a child was born blind, that his parents had sinned, and their sin caused that child to be blind. I mean, are you kidding me? And we think that is so far fetched. We think that's so ridiculous. But man, sometimes we still convey that same thing God could not love you anymore, and He cannot love you any less. Why would He intentionally do that to you? But they want to know who Jesus was, they want to know who healed them. And they asked the question So they asked Him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Because there was another law that was broken. You are not supposed to practice medicine on the Sabbath, on top of everything else. In other words, if someone was sick, you can't help them because it's a Sabbath. It's another one of these rules that we've come up with. And so they wanted to find out who defiled this law. And the man's like, I'll tell you. I'm not ashamed of it. He said, it said the man who, was, who, was, who had healed, had, who, sorry, I get it. The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. But John tells us that later, This is such a cool part. Later, Jesus found him. I'm not sure if Jesus sought him out or they bumped into each other. I'm not sure how all that happened. At the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Now the next thing we're about to read from John's writing has been so highly debated. Now there's all kinds of commentaries of why Jesus said the next thing. But just to set up the stage for this next thing, I think you have to take the most simple explanation of Jesus' statement. In fact, I'll just tell you ahead of time, I think Jesus makes a joke in this very tense situation. So Jesus finds this man that had been healed. He'd been you know, in trouble with the religious leaders for carrying his mat, carrying something on the Sabbath. And Jesus bumps into him, and he smiles with a big, goofy Jesus grin. And Jesus says, hey, man, hey, you've you got to stop sinning. You gotta, you're sinning too much to which I can only imagine that the man that had been healed smiles back. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, which the guy probably looked at Jesus and he said, would say, what worse could happen to me? I have been an invalid in the cesspool of pain for 38 years. Are they gonna just kick me out of the temple? Is that my punishment? They have no idea what I've been through. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. I think there's a joke between John Or or this man and Jesus. I think it's like, ha, you dirty, rotten sinner, stop sinning. You're doing this awful thing of carrying a mat on the Sabbath. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, it's so bad. And by the way, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, for some of you, what I'm about to read, I think, may really help you. Maybe set you free. Maybe give you some breath in your lungs. Because of the religious system you grew up in. Because of the things religious people have told you maybe you have so much religious guilt in your life you just need to hear this next statement this is why you showed up online with us today that's simply this when you choose to follow Jesus religion will lose its grip on you just read that again when you choose to follow Jesus religion will lose its grip on you it will give you some space It will give you some air to breathe. You don't have to realize or think if at the next moment God's going to cast me out of his kingdom or God's not going to love me. Jesus just kept coming back again and again and again and said, hey, you are my child. God is your heavenly father. You don't have to be bound by guilt and shame. This turned the church inside out when it was launched in this beautiful, beautiful thing. Like this man, he was set free from all that mess. It wasn't just about him being able to walk, although that was a huge thing. He had freedom in Jesus. And John, as an old man, was trying to capture that for us. So this is what John tells us, that the man... He went away and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, we're told, because Jesus was doing these sayings on the Sabbath, that's the problem, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And so they track him down. They have a conversation with him. And I love how John writes this. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father, you know, my father. You guys know my father in heaven. He's my father. We're like together together. My father is always at his work this very day, and I, too, am working. In other words, you don't want God to stop working, do you? Oh, wait Are you telling us that God's in trouble for working on the Sabbath? You did see the sun come up and the moon go down and the air is still below. You know, God's in charge of all that, right? You're not saying God did something wrong. You're not saying God made a mistake. Yeah, God's working, and you're glad he did. And by the way, I just do what my father does. Kind of like Father... Like son. So if you're not going to be mad at God, you can't be mad at me because I'm the same as God, which got Jesus in even more trouble. The reason we know this is John tells us. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. He's equating himself with God. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's one problem, but he was even calling God his own father. Are you kidding me? You could never address God in such a relational way. Jesus is like, well, I'm sorry, but he's my father, and I've told my disciples, my followers, to dress God as Father also, just so you know, making himself equal with God. In other words, Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Again, Jesus probably smiled. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also hey, John, you knew Jesus so well. What would you tell us? I think John would say, hey, have a cup of coffee and sit down. Do you want to know what God is really like? I mean, there's all these questions and everybody's trying to figure it out. People look up to the stars. They look inside themselves. They look at everyone else. Do you want to know what God is like? I'll tell you what Jesus said. If you want to know what God's like, listen to me. Don't confuse it with all the religious crap in this world. Listen to me, I am Jesus, and what I say is what my Father is saying. You wanna know what God is like? Follow me. And where you follow me, you will understand. And when I'm interacting with the most sinful people in the world, hey, Matthew, glad you joined our crowd, you're a tax collector, come and follow me. Woman at the well, talked about her a little last week, I know what you've been doing, I love you. Come on, come on, be one of my followers. Put your trust in me. When, when you watch that, you will know what God is like. I love the children, I love the poor people, the rich people, the black people, the white people. I, I, that's what God is like. That's how you know. You want to know what the picture of your heavenly father is? You look at Jesus. And, and we know this because Jesus makes this profound statement to these Pharisees. He says, you, like you should know this. You study the scriptures. You know them. Your your ideology's right. Your theology's right. Your political party's right. That's what you think at least. You study the scriptures diligently lots of time, but you think in them you have eternal life. You have not let the scriptures point you to eternal life. Living life is right in front of you, and you have your head buried in a book, and it's a perfect book. It's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful book. The scriptures are holy and right and true, but they point to something much bigger than just words on a piece of paper. That's why John would say the Word has become flesh. Here's what I can tell you. I'm not sure about it all, but here's what I know. God became flesh. And the Word is standing in front of you. And this is why John, after most of his friends had died, Jerusalem had been sacked. He's seen agony and pain that you can't imagine. He sacrificed everything. He ends up sitting alone on an island just waiting to die. He decides, in light of all that, I'm going to follow Jesus to the end of the earth, and I'm going to love my enemies. And when the Romans you know, hurt me, kill my friends, I'm going to love them and pray that God would do something in their life. I'm going to pray that God would keep his movement going, and it changed the world. John, poof. Why would you go to the nth degree to follow Jesus? Because I gazed into the eyes of life. And when I looked at those eyes, I knew there was life, an eternal life in them. I heard what he said, and I saw what he did, and I saw him rise, and I was so convinced. My friends, this is why the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, And John are so important this is why what these gentlemen wrote about Jesus we have got to hang on to in a world that's full with all kinds of ideologies and political parties and statements and theology and Christians that are so militant that if you don't get it right God won't love you anymore or he'll leave you we've got to hang on to what Matthew Mark Luke and John wrote about Jesus because once upon a time it changed the world And it can change the world again if we would act on it and love like it and be part of it. And and I'm telling you, at a time like this, there's no more important thing for us to do because there are people around us that are scared right now. But they may need some help in the next weeks to come. There are children that have to be looked after. Older people that have to be thought about. Love has to be shown by God's people. And it's not like, hey, we're going to do a program at church to take care of it. The best, the most effective way for that to happen is for all of us to look across the street, look across the backyard, make a phone call, and reach out to someone that needs to be loved. And I'm telling you, maybe the best person for you to reach out to would be someone that you can't hardly stand, that you think is the worst sinner in the world maybe that's the person that if you reach out to you would be the most like jesus someone that lives a lifestyle that's completely contrary to what you think is right maybe that would be the person you need to reach out to most because this is what we know from reading the gospels and what jesus said what john wrote that the you beside you your neighbor your friend your mother-in-law the coworker that you just dread seeing tomorrow the you beside you must take priority over the potentially flawed view that you may have and you may push back right now i'm like matt my views aren't flawed my views are right they're perfect i'm gonna write you an email i'm gonna give you a call i'm gonna set you straight and i'm just gonna ask you to rethink that because think about it if you're 30 if you're 40 years old i want you to just go back to your 20s did you have any views when you were 20 that you look back and you went oh i was way wrong with that were you convinced about anything in your 20s that you'd go, oh, I really missed the boat? Or maybe it was your approach. Yeah, what I, what I thought was kind of true, but my approach to it and how I viewed people, how I viewed myself in my 20s was t- totally wrong. And if you're in your 20s, you're like, Matt, why are you picking on me if we're in our 20s? Well, if you're in your 20s, just go back to middle school. Do you have any views in middle school that you would look back and you would say, I was totally wrong the way I thought about my parents in middle school and the way I thought about my teachers and my friends? you go, yeah, I probably do. Now, to give middle schoolers and high schoolers a break, you know, your frontal lobe wasn't developed yet, so you know, give them a break on that. So if you're a high schooler, it's coming along. Hang in there. You're going to be just fine. But if we had the potential to have a wrong view 10 years ago, we had the potential to have a wrong view now. Until we put it through the filter of what Jesus tells us about loving people. The idea that the you beside you must take priority over the potential flawed view you carry around that's already inside you. And it doesn't mean there's not absolutes. Yeah, God's an absolute. Forgiveness is an absolute. I'm broken and sinful. That's an absolute. But I don't want to use absolutes to hurt people. I want to use absolutes to point them to what's good and right in the kingdom of God. So here's a question as we wrap up. Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? Let me ask this a different way. Does your version of Christianity, which is a next level up, get in the way of loving people God loves? If anything with our faith gets in the way of loving people the way God loves, Your faith is wrong. My faith is wrong. And we cannot afford for our faith to be wrong. We have got to look at Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God that holds the whole world in his hands, and take him as he is, not the way we want him to be. And I'm telling you, friends, if ever for you and me, we needed to look at Jesus as he really is, it's right now. Because if we look at any other version, we will not have hope and we will not have strength and we will not have peace in our lives because you can't find that in the other version of Jesus except the real version of who he is. And right now we need hope. Right now we need strength and we need peace that he holds the whole world in his hands. And there's people in your life right now that are watching and they're trying to find hope, strength, and peace also and we can show them the way but we will not show them the way if we do not get this right through the eyes of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke that brought us the stories of Jesus this is the truth about the Pharisees of the day Jesus said you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life in the scriptures these are the very scriptures that testify about me we love the scriptures but they all point to who jesus was and is and still is today and i just think we ought to follow john's lead and love and change the world and change our communities change our families and be changed from the inside out. Guys, I would love to pray for you. I love for all of us to think about pointing our hearts and our heads towards Jesus. But here's the deal. Um, you may have jumped online because you just feel so uncertain about everything. And you're like, I need to put my trust in something bigger than myself today. And I'm going to give you an opportunity right where you are in your living room. And I'm just you got to believe me. It counts as much to put your trust in Jesus in your living room as it does when you show up at church. There is no different. But I'm going to simply give you a chance to say, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. I need forgiveness, I need hope, and I need help. And I believe in you. But just remember when you do this, the emphasis is on putting your trust in Jesus. Jesus, I just believe that you're bigger than I am. And you can handle my sin and the mess my world is in. So take my life. It is yours. So if you just want to pray with me wherever you are, you don't have to close your eyes if you don't want to. You just simply say this prayer. Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. I put my trust in your hands. I believe that you died for my sins because you love me. And your love for me was displayed on the cross 2,000 years ago. Forgive me. Give me hope, give me strength today, and give me peace. And let me follow the true version of who you are, Jesus. Thanks for loving me. Heavenly Father, I just pray for anybody in this world that prayed that prayer today. pray that you would just kind of invade their life, invade their space, and they'd come to the realization that their life is yours. And let them, let us, let all of us love well. And look across the yard, across the street, across the neighborhood of who we can help and be part of their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.